Good morning, Jorge. Good morning, Jorge. Spanish church right there, House of Zion. Will you guys all raise your hands from House of Zion right there? So somebody translate. Anything I'm saying, it's all about Jesus, I promise. So make sure you guys get that. Hey, it's so good to have you here this morning, and we are welcoming a lot of people that are new because we generally don't have an 815 service that has 900 people in it. Yeah, so much for... uh... So this whole survey about um, there's, it's an ungodly hour at 815 and all that stuff, except for Easter morning, right? Easter is like the morning you, you get up and do that. We had a sunrise service at 7. Uh, it's a privilege to have you here. My name's Troy. I'm, I'm the lead pastor here at Community Church, and we're just all about uh, sharing this hope of who Christ is. Um, this is not a performance. This is not a show. We're not earning points for God. Uh, we are just com- uh, passionate and compassionate, compassionate to people that are trying to discover what it means to know God. It's interesting, though, because we have a dilemma And the dilemma is that most people consider this holiday as uh, the most important of religious holidays of the year. 67% of Americans believe that. Now, what's interesting, you you look at the studies, and what kind of counters that is only about half know why this day is even significant. And and what's interesting is it's, it's kind of propped up for a lot of people because uh, for some reason, Easter, this Jesus guy, he died on Good Friday, and, and then he rose again, and so Easter, and if we just kind of punch that card and just honor that moment. And I want you to know that, that what we want to talk about is so much more. We had Good Friday, and for centuries, we call it Good Friday, but it wasn't really Good Friday for the disciples, was it? It was a dark Friday and a confusing Friday, and that's what you see before you, as Bobby said, out of the rubble and darkness and the dropping of the weight of our sin, All hope is born anew, and there's resurrection. Well, I want to talk to you about kind of a little bit of the struggle that we have as as humans, because we have a little bit of a problem. Our problem is, it starts really with called the why problem, and that is, there's a name for God. It's in the Old Testament. It's this name, Yahweh. In the English, it starts with a Y, and the book, uh, the Bible talks about that all of uh, our life and our worship and our time needs to center around God. But as you read like literature over the past several, you know, really several dozen years, we have found that as Americans, we're becoming more and more self-absorbed. And the why no longer stands for Yahweh, it stands for you. And what we tend to do is we create a circle around us And we try to adopt certain religious activities that we can kind of fit into our life because you are the most important. And we treat God that way, don't we? We kind of like say, well, I'll get to Easter, I'll try harder, I'll pray more, I'll do something. We'll we'll just kind of attach some pieces around kind of my world and my universe that's centered around me. We become a me world. If you look statistics, look at... Uh, Bowling Alone, Putnam's book, it talks about volunteerism and giving and church attendance and there's so much around that that we've lost the perspective of God being the center and we've made ourselves the center. We are all about consumerism and that has seeped into the church today. We have a culture that just says, what are you going to do for me? 
And then we look at the cross and say, what can God do for me? The problem is, this is not exactly how God had seen things, and so there's a book uh, called The Bible, and many of you have built things from Ikea, amen? How, how, how frustrating was that for you, to build things from Ikea? Um, if you built anything like toys for Christmas, um, things that you have to do the night before, those can tend to be really great family building moments, right? Right, ladies? Because us as dudes kind of like to what? We'll figure it out on our own. Well, there's this beautiful book that we call the Bible, the Scriptures, and often what we do is treat it like it's an instruction manual to build something, and we kind of think of it as these one, two, three steps. And we take the book, the Bible, and we kind of say, when I have a problem, and that's the way it works out for me at home, so Tricia knows that I won't read the instructions. I will give it the kind of male go and say, I don't need instructions. I just have this, this God-given ability as a man to put things together. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's wrong, right? And I go to fix it. So many of us treat God this way that all of a sudden, something's not putting together right. Your job, your, your spouse, <laughs> send me to the instruction book. How do I fix them? You kind of wrap the world around you, and you want God to wrap around you, and you use the Bible as more of just a helpful instruction manual. The Bible was never meant to be an instruction manual. Often people think of it as an instruction manual. It's not to be that. It's actually not even supposed to be just a nice book of good stories. The Greeks used to call that like Aesop's fables in Greek mythology, and you learn great lessons. The book of the Bible is called really the gospel or, or it's called the good news and a herald would come out and he wouldn't say, you know, I'm going to give you a great fable right now. He would herald an event. The book of the Bible, this book is, is not one that's about just nice stories. This book actually has been written over about 1,500 years. And so those of you engineers, as I'm going to draw right now, none of this is in scale. I had an engineer tell me that this is not in scale, so you're right. But here, here uh, it was kind of finished read, uh, written about 100 A.D. Over 40 different authors over that 1,500-year span wrote the Bible. Friends, at Easter lunch today, why don't you just try and give a go and say, we're all going to write a story, all right? I want you just to break up. And I want you to come back and we'll see if these stories fit. There are over, there's 66 books. There's 39 what's called the Old Testament. There are 27 books which is called the New. Look at the theme, old and new. These books all align so beautifully and these authors, these, all these over 40 different authors came from different walks of life for over 1,500 years and you know that the Bible is not a nice storybook or an instruction manual. It all fits. There is so much evidence around the reality of the Bible and its truth, even from secular minds. Archaeological evidence, the Ebla tablets were discovered. I don't have time to go into all this. In the 1970s, which demonstrated all of these places that the Bible speaks of are real places. Do you know that scientists recently, in the last five years, 
have seismic gear that they've gone around by the Dead Sea and they can tell when earthquakes have happened for centuries. Guess when they said a great earthquake happened in Israel? 33 AD. Someone was crucified and the skies went dark and there was a great earthquake. Friends, the Bible is not simply just a nice storybook or an instruction manual. There is so much archaeological evidence. They found the walls of Jericho. They, there, there's so much more. Historically, listen to this statement from the Smithsonian Department of Anthropology. Much of the Bible, in particular the historical books of the Old Testament, are as accurate historical documents as any we have found from antiquity. Friends, your history books are not as trustworthy as the Bible. We can cast as a culture so much, especially in, in, in upper-level education today, and we have professors kind of pontificating about what they personally believe when really, and from a secular mindset, you have to accept the historical and archaeological accuracy of Scripture. It says, for the most part, historical evidence described took place and these people really existed it goes on. There's more. There's literary evidence. Caesar's Gaelic Wars. They found 10 manuscripts. What they would do, they find manuscripts are copies of a book to kind of give credibility. Homer the Iliad has so many copies. They're one of the most. But look at this. 10 manuscripts for Caesar's Gaelic Wars. You have the, uh, you were a thousand years after the original. Aristotle's Poetics, his poems, about five. Look at the New Testament. 20,000 copies. The Dead Sea Scrolls gave these copy after copy because scribes under candlelight would write every letter. The Bible has this literary accuracy. More than many of the books that you've read in college, in graduate school, or PhD level. It doesn't end there. Science has tons. And I don't have time to go in this. In my next series, I'm going to go into the Bible. We're going to, not that we don't teach the Bible here, I'm going to really talk about the accuracy and how do you read the Bible in this next series. But you see that, boy, the science that has just been unearthed and the idea that the world was flat, man, was talked about by Solomon and the prophet Isaiah way at well before 3,000 uh, years ago. It's from some 500 years when we ago that we just kind of discovered that the earth was round. It goes on and on and on. That this book has a story. And it has a song that it's singing that all fits together. And it's not like God just put a good assembling of him coming down and highlighted a couple superstar people that you could try to be like. No, he said, I'm writing a story that I want you to know has a point. Somewhere in the Bible, towards kind of the middle, there is a gap, there is this space. And we know that this is kind of becomes that plot, that point in the movie where the heroine comes, or the, I'm sorry, the hero comes, and they save the day, and there's a point at which the Bible begins to speak about this, but there is a beginning to the Bible. And I put the infinity sign because God is the character, the first that we get to introduce to, in the beginning, in the beginning. Well, God always was, and so we put the infinity sign, he's always. But he decides that he's going to create heavens and an earth. And it's not this earth that Troy's creating, because this is a very different earth. But you get the point, right? There's cold places on the top and the bottom. Okay, perfect. He created the heavens and the earth. 
He also created, though, what we know, Adam and Eve. And Adam he created with board shorts and sandals, I'm convinced. And Eve, I'm sorry, ladies, with a dress and pigtails. There you go. He creates Adam and Eve, and he creates this garden, this beautiful garden, as it says, that there is this amazing tree. One of the trees is the tree of life, uh, giving them immortality. And then there's this other tree that we learn about. And it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know we're heading towards this problem because it's supposed to center around God. And that is the way the picture of the beginning of this book, the Bible, begins. But it has an end, doesn't it? In the end, we find that there's also a, uh, a place. A place that, though, is a city um, that doesn't need straight buildings anymore. Uh, gravity's not a problem. They don't have building contractors, so everybody's on for their own, right? It's a city. They say that this city is made of gold, right? There is also the infinity sign here. Why? Because they say there's going to be people that live there forever. God lives there with these people. Also, the end of this book, and it's the book of Revelation, and it says it in Revelation chapter 22, you find a tree. It's the tree of life. You see, God's always been about life. I think people always, there, there's this kind of comment in culture today that says God must be a cruel God because so many bad things have happened. But you've got to know that the story is God has always chosen life. Is it, it is us who have rejected God and not chosen life. As the story goes, we find that only certain people are going to be allowed in. Why is that? Why would God be so exclusive? Well, we find that in the story, in really, in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve decide, we are going to move Yahweh, or God, from the center, and it's time for us to be the center, remember? And so they, they get tricked by Satan, but really, let's give some, not give so much credit to Satan. In reality, Adam and Eve fell victim to the same very thing that we do today in our culture, that the world should revolve around us, and we are the most important. We fall victim to what's called idolatry. We worship ourselves. And so what you find is that Adam and Eve choose to what? Eat of the tree of the knowledge and good of evil. And you know what? God knew we couldn't handle that choice. Given the choice, he knew we couldn't handle it, and we didn't. God then, because they chose to make them the center, he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve now, board shorts, oops, different kind of shorts, gauchos or something, uh, and all, pigtails, I don't want to have her with a shaved head. Adam and Eve are outside the garden. They've rejected God. They've rejected life. And what happens is they begin to have children. They start to have children who also begin to have children. You see how this starts to happen? They start to have what's called sons and daughters of Adam. Another term we just sang about it is sons 
and, and daughters of man. You know what that means? We are born sinful people. You know what sin means? It means to move away from God. It means to reject life. It means to move away what God created as perfect. And what's amazing about this story in all of that, because we find that this, this lineage of sons of Adam goes all the way throughout time, and it will end up coming all the way throughout to where we are right here today. We are the sons and daughters of Adam. And so as the story begins to unfold e- even more, we start to see that there's some, some highlighted people. There's Abraham. Abraham is in Genesis 22, and God makes a covenant with Ab- Abraham and says, I am going to, to start a new line a line of people that are going to begin to make me the center. And if you follow what I'm going to ask you to follow, then I will honor you and I'll make a great nation. When he begins to do this, he's pointing towards something much greater. Abraham laughs, so does his wife, because they're nearly 100 years old, and he says, you're going to have a baby. And he just they laugh at God. They have a son, a little guy, and they say, and God tells him, I want to see how faithful you are to me. I want you to sacrifice that son. And the story in Genesis 22 is is him taking his son to the altar and just before the knife is about to take his son's life. You ask, why would God do that? Because God establishes something very early. Because of this rejection, because of this sin, blood is necessary to atone. What does that mean? To pay for. To pay the price of rejecting God to restore once again what was broken, to be made new, to be made whole. So God begins to paint this story, and you have story after story, and he saves this son, and he he has a ram, a sacrifice, which we get to see that's going to come much later. In the Old Testament, it doesn't end, though, and there's a nation that's born out of this, and it's Israel. Israel builds a magnificent temple And it's beautiful. And the nation of Israel, though, struggles. They have their first king, which was Saul, and then one that was called Promised. And in this line, would promise one even further. But David leads this nation, and even he fails. And if you read the Bible, you'll find that on and on and on, it's not a story of good, great people. It's a story of flawed, broken, sinful people, self-absorbed. And you find that they need, they need God. They need help. God institutes different people. He institutes priests, prophets, kings, and judges. All these to begin to help direct and guide and lead this nation of Israel that seems to be lost. And that's when you read in your Old Testament, that is the story. And the story isn't meant to focus in on the wars and all that. You're focusing on a nation and God trying to redeem a people and saying, make me center. Well, it doesn't end there, and there are a lot of interesting, great stories. There's one story, though, that's such a beautiful one, and we sang about it. It's really this story of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet, as I lifted up there, and so he, he wants to tell Israel of their sinfulness, and that's what judges and prophets did. 
There were good kings and bad kings, but Ezekiel is told, I want you to tell the nation of Israel, I wanna, I'm going to give you this dream, and the picture is that the nation of Israel is like a valley of dry bones. It is like just a valley of death. And that's what he's saying, your spiritual lives are, are so broken. And he says, I want you to tell them that I, and this is in Ezekiel 37, I'm going to breathe new life. In other words, I'm going to take what is dead and I'm going to resurrect. He's pointing to something else. Resurrection, it's prophetic. The Bible's filled with prophecies that are self-fulfilled. And so what you find is the nation of Israel continues on and they don't listen. They end up doing about 637 different laws and they try to get God in a box and kind of like a list of one, two, three and get it right, get it right. And so many of us today still treat God and his revelation of this story in the Bible this way. Like we can just go to instruction number one and two and three. When the whole point of these 39 books paints a picture that we don't have any hope. That we've lost our way. That we are so self-absorbed and consumeristic that we can't quite make God center on our own. We need help. Ezekiel says, then he said to me, prophesy to these bones, say dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is the sovereign Lord says to these bones, I will make, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will, re I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. Put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. God is about restoring life. He wants us to choose life. In Isaiah 9, 6, he's another prophet. Isaiah he prophesies, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is some 500 years before Jesus will be born. Isaiah will go on to prophesy the actual crucifixion, uh, that he will be nailed to a cross, Friends, this is not an instruction manual of the Bible. It is not a nice story. It is a, a picture of a God that is writing this, this song, this story, and saying, I love you. I desire you to move this why problem of yourself out of the middle and make me centered. It says in Scripture that he's a jealous God and longs for our worship of him. It doesn't in there. Well, we find that some reason in the future, there's heaven, and these people will be with God. How do they get there? They must know God. There are scriptures all throughout the New Testament that talk about, you say you know me? I, I've never met you before. I'm paraphrasing. Why? There's a large difference between having thoughts and, and facts about God and not having a relationship with God. You see, we're not very much different than this old way in the Old Testament. And that is, let's treat God like an instruction manual and let's treat it like 
kind of we can go one, two, three, and if we just do all the right steps that we'll get God figured out and we can solve the, all the problems that we have that make us anxious or worried or tired, we'll fix all those problems. No, it says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way you get to know God is through Jesus. The only way that you're going to get to know God is through Christ. And we know that coming to Jesus means recognizing that his crucifixion was necessary because there was a blood sacrifice needed. So many interesting facts. Do you know that Jesus was born in? Bethlehem, right? It is where they, they raise sacrificial animals. Do you know David is from Bethlehem? There is so much prophecy that keeps going arrow, arrow, point, point. There is something greater coming, and we celebrate Good Friday because a price had to be paid. A, a death had to be had. It says that Jesus lived a perfect life. Because there could not be a flawed sacrifice. And he became the last, friends, listen to this one, the last priest. He became the last prophet, the last king, and the last judge ever needed. He fulfilled all the roles. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It wasn't Jesus being exclusive. It says, I am, when you choose me, you choose life. And you return back to what you were created to be. This is the story of, of, of how crucifixion fits, and yet the story doesn't end there, and I think that's a part of the problem. We, we lay in this idea that we just need to hear that Jesus died, and that's it, and he died for our sins, but it is not the end of the story. You see, in order for us to know God, we need to know Jesus, but there is a group of people that knew Jesus all throughout the Bible, all the way up to our time today. And that collection of people from all different races and sizes and times throughout history are called the way they term them in the New Testament, or it will be called the church. Church means assembly. You know what it means? The assembling of people who claim Jesus is who he says he is. You see, we can get really self-absorbed in culture today, and we think that following Jesus is basically sitting you know, our, our tail ends in chairs and giving a little bit to God. And if he can fit my self-absorbed life and schedule, because I'm one of those people, I might be able to figure kind of religion out. You know what God says at the end of the Old Testament, and there's a 400-year silence. Right before that, Malachi Malachi will say, the prophet will say, I hate your festivals. God wants me to tell you I hate your worship services, in other words. I hate your gatherings of religion because you have missed the very thing that I'm trying to do. I want your heart. I want your heart. It doesn't in there, so we see that this group is the church, and that's called us today. And what's so amazing about this group is they, they're called to do something that designates them or differentiates them from everybody else. It was a symbol for them to do so that everybody knew that they had claimed the blood of Christ 
and said that they're sinners. And you know what that was? It's called baptism. It was a symbol, and it was people that stood in the water, and they had come to Christ, and there was an outward symbol of an inward reality saying, I'm going to now die with Christ and be raised new. It's why we have blocks that were black and gray and dropped at the cross on Good Friday because his blood paid the price. It's why we take communion. But then on Sunday, there's resurrection. On Sunday, there is new life. And he takes what was broken. And he takes those who have rejected him and not chosen life. And he says, I make new. It's why this term called born again. And these people will be termed as those who were born again. So how does this happen? What, what happens with God is there's this beautiful picture that Jesus says, I must make this sacrifice, this holy sacrifice, so another one will come. And it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is like a rushing wind, it says. And this rushing wind will empower people and it will make new and it will begin the transformation so no longer do people have to try harder to be spiritual. You know me. You know me. It's maybe a small, a small little kind of clarity issue here, but it is a large one in practice in our culture today. Wouldn't you agree? Because most people treat God as if they can kind of figure him out and wrap him around with some religious activities that we allow for, to kind of circle our own world. God said no. We need the crucifixion. We needed Jesus to die. But we needed resurrection. You see, it would be a bad trick for God to just send Jesus to die and not raise again because death would not be defeated. There is new life, and that's why we, symbolically in baptism, are to go in the water. That's not salvation. That's just an outward symbol to say, I am new. I no longer am chained to sin. I'm no longer the center of my universe. God is the center. But there's a struggle here, and as these guys clear the the board, I want to just kind of paint this picture for you. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's Isaiah 6. He will, he will paint a picture, and they're going to take this away on me. I don't know where they're at. Somewhere. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is a prophet. He has great information about God, and I think we have all the information. This board gives you plenty of information about God, about this story in the Bible. But there's something different about when you're faced in relationship with something. And Isaiah is going to come face to face with God. It's like this. I could tell you all about gravity right now, but gravity would not make sense until I took you to the Bay Bridge and pushed you off, right? You would have a whole nother relationship with gravity. You would feel something very different you'd have another, another level of respect and understanding. Isaiah, in the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, he sees this vision. God kind of teleports him into this space and sees um, him seated on a throne in the train of his robe, the back of his robe, 
is filling the entire temple. It would have been a magnificent sight. And it says above him were angels, seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings they covered their faces. With the other two they covered their feet, and with the other two they were flying. This had to be an overwhelming. This is like a sci-fi movie on steroids. It would freak you out. And it says that they were flying and they were calling to one another together. Could you imagine if you're in this place? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts shook and and the temple was filled with smoke. Um, Come on. Some of you have had nightmares. This would be overwhelming. Isaiah's response is not, I thought so. I remember reading these facts and I read the instruction book. I... This is, I thought he, I'm glad I put all my chips on God when I was on earth. What does he say? Woe. Woe to me. I cried, I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King and the Lord God Almighty. Before I went in the Marine Corps, I had a friend that graduated and I thought, I'm going to study because I like doing that. I can memorize things. And so I memorized the, my general orders and shaved my head. I did have hair back then, and I ran six miles. I had it all figured out. I had all the information. But it wasn't until I got off that bus on a late San Diego evening, and all of a sudden, I was at boot camp. There, there, was, a relation, there was a relationship. There was a new being in the presence of it that was not from any book or information. I couldn't explain it. I did the same thing uh, for our wedding, and Trish and I are planning our weddings, and I remember we talked about writing our vows, and I said, I'm gonna, let's, let's write our vows, and I remember Trisha humbly said, I'll, I need a copy, you know, in case I forget them, and I'm like, oh no, I won't, I won't. Come on, I can memorize messages like this, I'll be fine. I mean, I had all, I knew what was going on in every part of the, the wedding until the doors opened and I saw my bride, and I was done. Friends, you might know a lot about God. You may have information about God, but the scripture says if you don't know him, how do you know him? You know him by calling him Lord of your life because of the sacrifice he made, and you say, I'm no longer gonna make him center, and I'm gonna ask him to take residency in my life. It's called, really, it's, it's called resurrection. It's you dying and a new life being born in you. David will, will later on talk about this, about being awake, but Paul will say earlier, that is what happened in baptism. And so we're, we, we claim the blood sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we say we needed that blood to pay the price. And so we drop our sin at the cross, and it's no longer trying because it is finished. And then I need to find water. That's what they did. They would come to Christ in the New Testament and they'd say, where's water? After I've said yes, I believe who Jesus is. I don't know all the information. I just, I have enough. And I want to find water and people would find water. And they would do this outward symbol for an inward reality. That means they were just showing people, I am new. I'm born again. I'm made new. So Paul's saying, he's saying, 
What happened at baptism, we went under the water, left the old country of sin behind. We came up out of the water. We entered the new country of grace, a new life and a new land, resurrection. You see, it's great to celebrate Easter weekend, and Good Friday is Good Friday, but it's not the end. In fact, the beginning is resurrection. And resurrection means we get to live free and we can celebrate and worship. And then we long to know the story of God through his, his revealed Bible. We long to gather with other Christ followers and people who follow Jesus because we long for that. He begins to produce fruit in us to love people that are unlovable and have joy in places where there's no joy and to bring peace and patience and kindness. This is called the way and those people know God and will be with him forever and have life. David will write a, a song and he'll, he'll write this in a cave running from Saul. My heart, O God, is steadfast. He says it twice, it means a lot in the Bible. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, my soul. Resurrection. What's your song this morning? Is your song, maybe you have a list of rules and you have some things that you've done for God and you're still living in guilt and shame and disappointment? God says, I'm offering my son as the sacrifice that Abraham didn't. He'll pay for that guilt and shame and that rejection of me. Admit it. This morning, I'm just gonna have you bow your heads and we wanted to offer every person in this room the chance to know Jesus. But I can't give you enough information in the time slot I have. I've already gone over and I, I can't go long enough to give you all the facts. This morning, some of you know without a shadow of a doubt that you need to stand and say that I want Jesus. I want that blood sacrifice and I want him. I choose to put him in the middle. If that's you this morning, would you just stand up? If you want Christ this morning, on this Easter, in 2013, would you just stand, if it's you? And some of you just sense that it's supposed to be you this morning. Just stand up, wherever you're, sit you're sitting. And those of you who are standing right now, and if you're going to, those who want to keep standing, I, I want you to pray this prayer, because it's between you and God. It's not through a priest. It's through Jesus. And you tell God that you know that you've made life about yourself and that you're sinful and you've rejected him. And you tell him you want to make God the center and accept the sacrifice he made for you in Jesus. Would you do that? And would you finish your prayer by saying, God, would you now take residency, full lordship, be on the throne of my life and resurrect a new life in me. Father, as those who are standing right now, God, we pray for your presence to overwhelm them with a sense where the guilt and shame and sin is dropped. And God, that they'd be made new in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. And can, I just want to say, that is an amazing decision you've made. You can clap.
your decision is not over. And neither is many of you in this room. Because the Bible teaches this. The story and the song is baptism. We claim the blood sacrifice of Christ, but then we claim resurrection. And resurrection is finding water. And some of you have been baptized as infants, and that's more of like a parent dedication. But friends, nowhere in the Bible does it say that infant baptism gets you into a relationship with God. Nowhere. That is a lie. You don't get entrance into heaven by membership to a church. You find entrance and choosing life through Christ. And when you do that, he says, would you stand up and find water? And it represents resurrection in your life. And there could be no better Easter service than us celebrating the resurrection of people, of people's lives of being born again. And so we have, as we call the baptuzi, um, baptism jacuzzi put together, um, filtered water, by the way, and warm. But I think some of you did not come dressed for baptism, and we know that, and that's okay. Because you just sense that you need to, to step up and be baptized, maybe for the first time. Infant, that's not discrediting in that. That's, that was a great move by your parents to dedicate you. Baptism, as Jesus calls it, means you are making a proclamation. I am a sinful person that has been made new. I claim that blood sacrifice of Christ. It is a response to your salvation. We're going to sing together. We're going to worship. You can stand up. You can put your hands up. You can shout because this is celebration. This is resurrection. And that is the best part of Easter. It's resurrection. It's new life. And so in this room, nothing is sacred other than honoring the celebration that's going to happen in heaven for those who come forward. And so if you want to be baptized, would you come right up there and we'll have our elders and our team and just we're going to worship together and celebrate. Amen?